I'm Michelle Olivier, and you're listening to Hey, I Want Your Job, the podcast that looks at amazing jobs and what it takes to get them. Welcome to Hey, I Want Your Job. And this week, I have Karen Ruby. And I mean, maybe I wanted your job in my 20s. I definitely wanted your job in my 20s. And one of your jobs, people are always like, oh my God, you should totally do that job. And I'm like, that is not how I roll. So, Karen, what's your job title? Oh, I know the job you're referring to. That's the job of comedian. I bet. I bet. I was like, you're so funny. You should be a comedian. People say that to people all the time. And it's not a good lifestyle. No. Also, I have many other jobs, but we'll get there. Yeah. But like, I just feel like there's such a big difference between I am conversationally funny and I could stand up in front of people who I do not know and have like no context for my wit and be funny on demand. That is a much harder thing to do. Like being conversationally witty is just mostly about not giving a shit. But <laughs> if you start there, usually you're fine. And if you're willing to pe- like pepper in F-bombs here and there, especially in a business context, people think that you're like a real rebel. So it's like you could do stand up. <laughs> you know what it is? It's, it's a matter of um, working on it and practicing the jokes and that's the thing that the people who go oh you should be a comedian don't understand right it's like what I I actually am not doing stand-up right now and I haven't done it since the pandemic and I'm not sure if I'm gonna do it I probably will again but like it's whatever um but you know in the before times I mean I'd go to three maybe four clubs a night and by clubs sometimes I just mean basement of a bar to be honest um but you know you you have to work it and you have to work it and you have to work it and so it's like repeating 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 and then you say a joke and then somebody says something weird and you're like funny comeback and you're like "Ooh, that goes there and now I say that every time you know or some other comedian you get off stage they go here's a good thing you should say that at the end or maybe I don't think you should say this and you know and it's just it's like working it out and and that's the work that people don't know or understand when they say you're funny you should be a comedian you know and then everybody thinks that they can just get up on stage and be funny and maybe they can the first five times or not you know I mean I don't know see I think it's like the Miss Maisel effect right like we all were dazzled stupefied and amazed by Miss Maisel right because it's a great show Mm -hmm. but she just got pissed Mm -hmm. and got up on a stage and slayed yeah and I get that but that's not real like that's heavily scripted there was a whole team of writers at Amazon that made that happen like if your expectation is like well shit I get pissed and I'm funny when I'm pissed I too should be a stand-up comedian that is not how any of this works like but but in a way it is in a way it is um but like start out at open mic nights you know go to open mic nights every night of the week, go to three open mic nights every night of the week, you know, sit through the drudgery of all the dudes making their dick jokes and the rape jokes. And you go, God, what, get out, you know, um, cause that's, <laughs> that's so here is a really funny. So I spent 10 and a half years in England and my husband is super British and, um, he and his bestie had like a boys weekend in the before times in DC and they love comedy. And we used to go all the time to comedy clubs in the UK. And so they're like, Oh shit, there's this comedy club around the corner. We should go. And then they're like double. Oh shit. Chris rock's brother is performing. I mean, like Chris rock is hilarious. Even if he's terrible, that's kind of funny in and of itself, right? Like, there's no lose with this. Mm -hmm. When they go to this comedy club, and this is your your joke about the dude bras made me think of this. (laughs) Two, like, Whitey McWhiterton English dudes walk into this comedy club, and they're like, everybody, he was like, everybody was staring at us. It was very uncomfortable. And I was like, oh, 
did you do something weird? And he was like, well, finally, somebody came over and they're like, hey, friend, are you lost? And they were like, I don't think so. We're here for the whatever the guy's name is show. Like, no, no, that's here. Everybody is staring at you, not to be rude, but this is a black comedy bar. Mm. You are not black. <laughs> and they were like, we didn't know that was a thing. This guy seemed funny when we watched him on YouTube. Are we good? And they were like, awesome. And like, they were super welcoming after that. But like, it was very weird for them to have like these two super white dudes walk in. And I, in my extreme naivete, I too did not realize that like there were flavors of comedy bar, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And flavors of comedy, it makes sense mm -hmm. to me that that kind of thing would happen. But as a layperson <laughs> looking to go out and enjoy live comedy, how do I select a comedy venue that is not going to have rape jokes and dude bras? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Um, I did a lot of comedy when I was in Chicago and Chicago is a very segregated city. And so um, if I went to a place on the north side, it was 98 to 99% white. And if I went to a club on the south side, it was black. And that's just how Chicago is, you know? That is, yeah. That is just like the geography of Chicago. Mm -hmm. Like the demographic split is palpable. Yeah. Right. And so, I mean, the first couple of times I did comedy in the black black clubs right I was like nervous right of course like oh my god are they gonna are they gonna like me I don't know but you know you just if you're funny you're funny and it doesn't matter it doesn't matter but you have to be funny like you can't you can't not be funny like it's the most honest clubs you know what I mean like there's if you're not funny, they're they're just not gonna have it. I know? mean, I feel like that's gotta be rule like step one of comedy, right? Be funny. It step is, two, but like I mean, other. I've I've look, not every night when you do comedy, you kill. Not every night. You know, sometimes it's not a good night. And I could always tell. I mean, you you know look, you know when it's you know because you can hear the laughs or you don't hear the you know. And the worst thing for me was when I get off the stage and like somebody would say, you're so brave that you do comedy. And I was like, you think this is a compliment. <laughs> this is not a compliment. <laughs> I appreciate what you're trying to do, but please don't do it anymore. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it didn't happen a lot, to be fair. Like, I'm funny. But, but like, you know, everybody has an off night or like you're trying new jokes and they just don't work or like, I don't know you smoke too much weed or yeah I don't know it's like everybody ugh. has bad days right like I have like I, I think that you probably have this as well I think anybody who is kind of like a naturally irreverent or kind of a witty person right you go into any social situation business meeting friends encounter what have you the expectation is that you're going to show up and be the funny one and there are days that I do not feel funny mm. there are days when those little bastard children have been up since five o'clock in the goddamn morning and the dogs are going nuts and there's five things going on and I have a migraine and oh, I do not want to sit here and be pithy at you mm. because that is your expectation. And I can only imagine like if that was my career to be funny, like you got to suck it up buttercup. Yeah, what do you I mean, do to make that nice happen? thing for me when I did it is I, you know, had a set that I had written and worked out. So, and yeah, I mean, it's it's also a lot of it is in the delivery. So if you're having a bad night and you don't deliver the joke with the right timing or the right intonation, or, you know, you get distracted because the waitress drops the drinks right on your punchline, you know, any number of things can happen, but at least, having the jokes and then once you've been doing it for a long long time then you have like a rolodex if you will in your head so it's like oh this happened now i can just cut to that and i know this always works and you know and i can go to that and then oh they said something like stupid in the audience but like oh yeah well i have a comeback for that and that relates to this joke here and then i pull it back over and so you're you're that's the thing is like you're saying things but like this is going on <laughs> like what comes next what comes next what might be going to get here and detour <laughs> 
I think that that needs to be like a new criteria for me because I have a couple of my clients in recruiting that I say that they need Gilmore Girls people, that they have that witty pattern, that like fast talking, ask and answer kind of vibe. And like, they just culturally would not tolerate a reflector to like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and then come back tomorrow with a great idea as a culture, they would be like, Ugh, fucking Susie. Right. <laughs> so like, they just need that banter. And I feel like maybe I should be looking for more comedians for them. Perhaps this is, this is where I missed a trick, Karen. Yeah. yeah. Feeling educated now and inspired already. Oh, that's really why I'm here. <laughs> Um, we talked about comedy, but that is but one of your many hats. So, um, tell me about, uh, scripts and what you know about those. Script supervising? Yes. You mean? What does that mean? So I'm a script supervisor. That's another day job that I have. It's where I work on set and I basically manage the continuity of filmmaking um, as you may know, as your audience may or may not know, films are filmed, they're made out of order. So, you know, just because like you're watching a film and they walk in the house and then they go to the kitchen and then they do this, we don't film them walking in the house and then go to the kitchen and then follow them around because that doesn't make sense financially, right? You right. There's like a scene. All the outside shots happen and then all the inside shots happen. Right, right. So you're constantly, oh, that's dog barking in my building. There you go. Sorry. Um, so we have this whole intricate system of making sure to keep track of everything, what's been shot, what's, you know, coming up, what is the motivation of the character in this scene? What happened in this scene that we shot three weeks ago that plays right after the scene that we're about to shoot? Are they wearing the same clothes? Does their makeup look the same? Does their hair look the same? Did we forget to put the makeup bruise on because they had a fight that we haven't shot yet? Or, you know, like, a table scene and you're, shoot, you, you're shooting a table scene all day. Well, the actor's gonna probably take a drink from their drink a couple of times, but when we reset it and we shoot their coverage on them, or then we shoot on this person and then we do the wide or all like all of that, you have to make sure that things match, you know, cause you've all, we've all seen it, right? Like you're watching a film and it's a wide shot and their plate is full and then you go on a close-up and everything's empty and then it goes back to something it's like things are jumping around so we try and protect from that but also in the end it's not really our responsibility um because it we make all the notes on set there's it's a big job it's like a hard to like explain it all but like we also take all the notes of of what was shot and what kind of camera and the lenses and you know how many uh, takes we did and which ones were better which one had a good sound or a bad sound with the airplane flying over all these things all these notes you know and then the editor takes the notes but if take one was the best performance of the actor even though I specifically said do not use this take we forgot to put the actor's hat on they, I, they don't care that's the best performance that goes in the show. And then somebody's watching it online and they go script supervisor, stupid. They didn't have the hat on. And it's like, I, I'm, you know, I am not stupid. I am not listened to. They're different. <laughs> I was going to ask you that because there is, there's like this whole cult of people in the nerding community um, who like, Are you one? Uh, I'm not one of these particular flavors oh. of asshole, but I am in the nerd community for sure. Okay. Um, yeah. And <laughs> that, but they like that, that's how they get the rocks off, right? Is they watch films and they look for moments that something didn't go exactly right. You must like, they must be the bane of your professional existence. Well, it's funny. Um, it, I don't personally care about it but um but one of the scripts oh I have a new podcast that just launched today whenever we're taping it so whenever you're watching this it will already exist it's called script supervisors unsung heroes of film and tv check that out um and one of the script supervisors that I interviewed for the podcast Robert Goodwin he used to be that guy before he was a script supervisor he was that guy 
And so now does he like go on to those forums and like those discords and be like, stop it. You know, not what you say. No, but, but he tells some great stories in the podcast about how, cause, cause I talk about, you know, how with continuity, like something happens and we don't shut the production down. We just keep going and things aren't going to match. And that's just what it is. And like, everyone always says, well, you know, if they're going to focus on this one thing, that's a continuity error, they're not paying attention to like, we're not, we're not doing a good job. If, if they're really focused on this silly thing that has nothing to do with the story, you know, and he always would say, yeah, but I was one of those guys and you don't want to give them an excuse to focus on that thing. Cause that takes away from what we're trying to do here. So, I mean, it's like, we can only do so much as a script supervisor. Like we can say, Hey, here's the thing I noticed. We should probably address it. And nine times out of 10, it's like either they, they can and they do, or, or they just say, well, we don't have the time to do that. It's going to take too much time. We're on the clock. We have only so many hours, whatever, whatever. So we're just going to move on. And we go, I told them they said to do it anyway. So that's the secret behind the scenes. <laughs> I love that though, that like, you know, there's, I can't even, so how big is your stuff? Because for a film, it can't just be you. Like for a major motion picture or a TV show or any of those things, like it cannot be one human being making all of those notes and doing all of those things and running all of the copy to everybody and like the proliferation of duties that must come with that. You must have a staff, surely. So this is why we started our new podcast, Script Supervisors, Unsung Heroes of Infinity, uh, because <laughs> we, we want to change that. I mean, on really big, big, big films, there are sometimes other units because they're shooting simultaneously there's like second unit and they're doing like b-roll or they're doing some of the other scenes that happen like some vfx stuff or whatever so that might be an occasion to have a second script supervisor um i've learned through this podcast that in england your old stomping grounds they have assistant script supervisors on a lot of projects we don't have that here um, so part of the reason we're doing this podcast is to increase visibility, awareness, and say, hey, this is insane what you want us to do. Like one camera, okay. Then they throw two cameras, like anything over two cameras. I worked on a short film that had six cameras. And it's like, you, all, you're, all you can do is just write the notes as fast as you can. You I know, just like getting my, because you have to be there, I would think, live while they're shooting to be making notes there. And then, like, on top of that, you would have to go home at night or after shooting and then round out all of the millions of things you didn't get to say and put in the, like, yeah, it's, it's like, it's, motivation. Oh, my oh my God. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. How do you wind up doing that? Because that job, I think, would totally make me, like, curl up in a ball and cry. How do you go from being, normal human <laughs> to doing this role like i mean you know, well because when people think about anything regarding like film and television is always aspirational right mm -hmm. like we all feel like that 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 that's for something beyond this normal mortal realm so like how do you go from whatever was your childhood into working in these because you've worked on huge projects with like huge people right I mean, they won some Oscars. Does anybody really care? I, I worked with people who have won Oscars. That is true. Yes. The people on my podcast have, like, I have, you know, the script supervisor for Black Panther, the script supervisor for Harriet, the script supervisor for Mr. Roba, the script, I mean, on and on and on and on, like all the top tier people, Pen15, all the things, right? Um, so they're ahead of me in the game. Um, but I'm right. I'm getting there. But how did I do it? Well, so I grew up in Chicago and like, I always knew that I wanted to I work. Paused. You said you grew up in Chicago. I did. did you really grow up in Chicago or did you grow up in like Deer oh, Park or something? Okay. First of all, I had this conversation the other day with someone who was from Aurora. Um, I was born in the city. Okay. And when I was seven, my parents moved to the North suburbs, but it wasn't that far and I did go to the city a lot all growing up. Are you from there? Do you know? So I went to school not far from there. I have a huge number of friends who all tell you they live in Shy, and they do not. They live in Deer fucking Park. 
No, no, I was closer. Or Evanston, or do you know what I mean? Like, okay, but like Evanston, and though, then, there is an argument to be made that Evanston is Chicago. And I it's have heard all of these religious arguments, and I'm here to tell you that my friends that grew up and lived their whole lives on the south side of Chicago are like, all you white people from the suburbs need to stop. <laughs> I'm not mad at that. I'm I feel like they have that. a point. <laughs> but, you know... I mean, we used to say, because people from Schaumburg would be like, I'm from Chicago. And we'd be like, no, you are not. Yeah. So this is a whole thing. I'm I had somebody from Rockford See, try to tell me. No. I was like, what? No. No. They're like, well, we're the second biggest city in the, in the state. And? Get out. How does that make it Chicago? I don't understand. Rockford. No. Rockford. No. I mean, like, I, I, I was on comedy shows in Rockford. <laughs> so. There you go. Anyway, sorry, back. So you grew up in Chicago, and then what happened? I grew up there, you know, always wanted to work in the film. Like, I, it was like my dream, right? But, like, I didn't have, like, a specific dream of what job I would have. Like, I didn't grow up thinking, I'm going to be an actor. I didn't grow up thinking, I'm going to be a writer. It was like, I'm just going to work in this industry in some nebulous, unforeseen way that I don't know. I don't know. Like, I don't know. Because when I was... 10 how could I know about script supervising I couldn't I would I didn't you know shh, my phone is going crazy um so yeah so I was doing the acting and writing and comedy thing I still do that I've been doing that for a very long time but it got to a point where it's like um well a it's really hard to support yourself financially doing those things right like I've always had in the past day jobs. I was a legal assistant and entertainment law. Like I've done like lots of like day jobs, you know. Yeah. Um, Waitressing is the classic, but there are other permeations, you know. I've absolutely. done that, but like I wasn't, I, I did that when I was younger, but like, I don't know, wasn't my jam for like career choice. Cause I wasn't, I wasn't that serious about being an actor. As much as I love acting, I love acting, but it took me until in my 30s before I could even say with a serious face and believe it, I'm an actor. Mm. You know, that was a whole, who has time for that? That's, that's therapy. We don't talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> I feel you though. I mean, I had a minute when I was a kid that I wanted to be an actress and like was serious about it that I like went to an equity school and like, wow. had, yeah, all of that kind of shit. And like at one point they just pulled my parents aside and me and they're like, all right, here's the deal. She has some talent. That is true. She is also fat. And this is a very hard industry for anybody who is not built like that. If that's the path she wants to walk, she's good enough that we'll represent her. But you need to know, because I was like 12. Mm. They're like, it's going to get, real bad real fast and they're not going to be gentle and they're not going to be subtle because she's a kid and I was like nope <laughs> I noped right out and I like it makes me sad that that's where the industry is but like I have always been so appreciative of that real conversation do you mm -hmm. know what I mean that like somebody had the balls to sit down and say here's what you would be signing up for is that a thing you want to do? Wow. That's, first of all, kudos to you for A, making this decision and being okay with it. Like, you're so okay. Like, you know that that was right. Like, that's amazing. Rather than being like, oh, it was me and oh, the world and, you know, all that stuff. Right? Because, like, that's where I would think most people would go because it's not fair and it's no. not right, you know? No. And I'm sure probably you had your moments of feeling that. Oh, I was but, a 12 year old kid. I was devastated, right? Yeah. Like, I was super sad, but my parents were like, well, they told you what it's going to be. And I was like, I don't want people to call me fat every time they see me. I'm good. And so, like, it was really easy from that perspective. But mm -hmm. at the same time, like, you know, it took a lot of. It, it took many years for me to get the Zen and talking about it, Karen. Therapy is an amazing thing. So. Yeah. yeah, right. But but congrats. I mean, that's some people they never get over it, and it's mm -hmm. and then they become stand up comedians. <laughs> or worse, they become community theater people oh. in their like forties and fifties, convinced that they were like had their 
star stolen. God save me from community theater people who think they should have been on Broadway. Yeah. But like, there are some that are just like, look, I love acting. So I'm going to do it wherever I can. And like, for and them, that is fine. That yeah. is fine. We're not talking about those people. No. If you are of those people, we applaud you. Right on. Yeah. You do you, do you have fun, enjoy it. But if you think, no. <laughs> but like, you know, when I retire in my dotage, I can totally see me like, be like, sure, I'll do some community theater. Why not? I do not have that kind of time right now. But someday I will. And that might be fun. And then I'll be old and I'll get like Dame Judy Dench parts because I have a great English accent having lived there for 10 and a half years. So I can play all of like, you know, the old white women roles. It'll be great. <laughs> Sounds fun. But so back to you. Um, you did not know that you wanted to be an actress. You just wanted to swim in those waters. Right. Yeah. A long time to own. I am an actress. Yeah. Well done for owning it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like I started taking when I, I moved out to L.A. when I was 28 um, and I started taking acting classes and I found myself at Second City after a while, which I mean, I grew up watching Second City because, you know, I'm from Chicago. So I used to see those shows in high school because I lived there anyway. So, you know, I'd sit in the audience and I'd be like, oh, my God, I wish I could do that. I wish I was that funny or that smart. They're so amazing. If only one day. And then, you know, I was here in L.A. and I was in a play and one of the other people in the play, he's like, you're funny. You should do Second City. And I was like, me, I can do it. And so I signed right up and I did the whole Second City program. It was amazing. And then from Second City, I did a lot of sketch and I did a lot of improv and then I started writing. And it was just like it kept escalating. Um, and then back to where I was like, well, I was just doing all these things. And it just felt like a really expensive hobby at some point. You know, I was like this, like, I love it. But it's like, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not the lead actor person. I'm just, that's not my time. I'm four foot 11. You know, I'm like the quirky best friend, whatever. And like, but like also I was sort of aging out of quirky best friend. Cause like ages of ageism is like, you know? And so I was like, how can I be on set? Set is my happy place. I love being on set. How can I contribute to this production? I mean, you watch a film, you watch a TV show and there's like endless names. There's endless names of people that are working in the industry. And I was like, there's gotta be something that I can do. And I went through every single one, researched it, Googled it, read stuff on it. And I was like, nope, 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 no, 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 don't want to do that. No, 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 no. Script supervisor, huh? Oh, that looks interesting. That's literally the only other thing besides writing and acting that I had any interest in doing. Like, I don't want to be a director. Like, I don't want to be a camera person. That's too much technology. You have to learn cameras and all, all the all the stuff about how they work. No, I don't care about that. Like, lighting's cool, but like, I don't really want to take a deep dive on color temperatures. Like, I'm not interested. I wasn't interested in anything else. <laughs> oh my God. I love this so much. So I have always thought the two jobs have always struck me and I would love to hear your reasons for dismissal on these yeah. two in this space have always been um, location scout. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, travel around, take pictures of places. Right. Get paid. Mm -hmm. I could do this. Mm -hmm. Location scout and casting. I'm like, right. okay, I'll take all the power. <laughs> okay. So one at a time. Yeah. Location scout. I mean, that's a good job, but you're not on set. Okay. Very you're fair. Very fair. Running yeah. around. And it's like, I mean, I'm interested in buildings and locations. And I do like to look at apartments when I'm not looking to move. You know what I mean? But like, it just didn't feel like what I wanted to do all the time. And there's a lot of other like paperworky stuff that goes along with that, that I'm just like, mm, thumbs down on that. So that's why Location Scout was out. Okay, fair. Uh, I like casting too. I've actually temp or not temp, I've interned in casting 
Um, I've, I did help on casting several things and I love it. Casting's great. It's fun. You get to see behind the scenes and you get to watch all these actors make a fool of themselves or do really, really well and like advocate for them and get people jobs, which is awesome. But it's really, really competitive and hard to get into, you know, and it just, it feels to me, even though it's a creative, it's also much more corporate. Like, cause you're dealing with the, the studios and there's a lot of like, you can, you can say who you want, but you don't have the ultimate say. Like if the studio says, we're not going to work with that person, you can't choose them. If the director says that person looks like my ex-wife and I don't want to hire her. You know what I mean? Yeah, there's yeah, a yeah. lot of things that go on. Like the idea of casting to a lot of people is really fun and interesting. And a lot of it really is. But like as a day-to-day, -day, no, not for me. I think it's a natural alliance for me because to me, casting is like recruiting, but in films, right? Like it's the same thing. And I think that never in my life have I been quite so humbled as I was director of talent acquisition for the YMCA, which mm -hmm. is a, you know, la-di-da kind of title, right? Mm -hmm. I felt very powerful in my position. Yeah. My sister was applying for a job working at the daycare there. And she was like, right. So what's the deal? And I was like, well, you know, you meet with this person. So she was like, you can't just hire me. And I was like, no, you wouldn't report to me. She's like, so you don't actually have any power. What is the point of you again? And I was like, all my ego just. <laughs> and that way that like, you know, only siblings can really achieve sometimes. But I feel like that is exactly what you just described. <laughs> Casting people that you're like. Yes, I am the casting director. And no, you will not get this role if you do not make it past me. But also, you will if the director's brother needs a role and he's decided to cast him. So, Well, yeah. And like, you know, being on the other end of the casting, you know, it's like you have an audition in three hours. You have to drive across town. Or nowadays, it's like you have an audition. Upload your tape within two hours. And you know, like, so it's like this super stressful situation, especially for like lower level, like yeah, yeah. co-star roles, one line roles. It's like all of a sudden they have to like cast all these people and they have to watch all these videos. And it's just, it, yeah, just doesn't feel like the fun idea you have in your head of what casting really is, where you get to like discover Brad Pitt. I'm just saying Brad Pitt because I've just saw these videos of him on Instagram and like, that's fine so discovering there. brad pitt i mean i think I mean, can you imagine like, somebody did right yeah but i think like recruiting is the same i think that we get such a, a a reputation for being like these you know evil masterminds it's like you're way way giving us way too much credit and power like what we really are is somebody with a mountain of resumes to get through in like an hour mm. it's not malice it's not like evil genius. It's just general laziness and also a lot of work in a short amount of time. That's the whole whole list for most of it. And I have other things I think about recruiters. But anyway, back to you. So you went through all of these millions of things and you thought, gosh, what is the thing that would really make sure that my blood pressure is always the highest mm -hmm. and that I definitely never get eight hours of sleep? at night um, mm. during filming and you were mm. like mm. that script supervisor but we get to sit next to the director all day you know we're included in all the cool conversations you know with the dp and with uh, like huh? you know you just you're you're looped in on everything it's cool when it's a good cool. gig it's a really good gig you so know it doesn't I have... feel like work if being on set doesn't feel like work to you like it doesn't Fair. for me it feels like fun I'm in fun time the time doesn't matter day the politics nothing matters we're on set you know nothing on the outside world exists except this environment that we've created where we control the light and we control the sound and we control this this and that you know except for when the airplane flies over and we do hold for airplane but you know what I mean Mm -hmm. So when you, so being in there for all that minutia, 
when it comes time to watch it after it's done, mm-hmm. does that make it hard no. for you to watch? Or do you like watch it and be like, that's that fucking moment where that plane flew over. And like, does it, does it make it hard? Because I think the best part about film and, and, and great storytelling, right. In that way is being able to be immersed and like just captivated and taken away by the story. I would think that like, if you had had that level of engagement, it would make it a lot harder. Cause you'd be like, Mm-mm, that was the day that I thought I was going to stab me a makeup artist because she did not read any of my notes. Right. Like <laughs> I would just think that all of that would come back. Do you still get to enjoy them? I do. I do still enjoy them. Um, but it is a different level of enjoying. And there is always that stuff in the back of the mind. Like, that was when we were fighting the sun. Because this really should have been a scene that took place during the day. And look, it, it's dusk. And it does not match. And that's what happened that day, you know, or, oh my God, we didn't have that actor and we had a stand in and it's their back to the camera, but I can tell, and I know it's the wrong person or whatever it is. Like, so yeah, those, yeah. those things do come up while I'm watching it, but also it's like this true joy and appreciation because knowing how much work was put into it, how many long days, sometimes overnights, you know, when you shoot it, when when you're watching something that takes place at night, outside at night, we were working from like 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. that day, you know, we're working all night, you know, so you get to like go, oh, we did it. Look at what we made. It turned out, oh my God, it turned out so good. Congratulations. We did it. Yay, go team, you know? That makes total sense so is script supervisor like are you now like this is now your happy place and like this is where you're gonna go or if I gave you a magic crayon yeah and let you write your own job description yeah would you write something different would you be the leading woman would you be the director see the thing is like I'm I realized recently I am living my dream life right now because I'm doing all of the things like I have a pilot that's winning awards I have a short film that I co-wrote and starred in as a man and it's making festival rounds and winning awards in festivals so like all of my interests are all happening right now so I get to script supervise a film you know for a friend or for somebody you know for work or whatever like I get to go do that and then I also get to do my other thing like I get to do everything that I'm just so blocky right now I'm this is I I wouldn't change it I love that like that makes me so completely I can't even tell you how wonderful it is to hear when I spend all day with people like yeah, I'm looking for a new job because, and you can tell that the answer is because your current job are like nothing but assholes, right? Yeah. Like I'd love to hear somebody saying, Every, like everything's coming up, Karen, and I'm excited. That's I mean, amazing. Look, sometimes being on set is terrible. You know, sometimes there's a director who's an asshole and who yells or a DP who like refuses to acknowledge me like won't even talk to me, you know? And I don't love doing night after night of overnights. It fucks up your sleep. It fucks up your life. It's not comfortable, but still. (laughs) But you still wouldn't change it. You sound like a parent. You know that, right? Like this is the kind of thing we tell ourselves to get through the PTSD of small humans is it's like, I know I haven't slept in a week and I know I live in constant abject terror that they're somehow going to kill themselves or somebody else. But also I would never change it because look how peaceful they are when they're asleep. And I think I made that with my own body. Right. I'm just saying it's not healthy when we say it either, Karen. (laughs) I know. Um, But that is amazing. And I am super happy. So I have a a brass tacks kind of question. As a script supervisor, is that something that gets hired on an individual basis? Like the director's like, I need Karen Ruby because she's the bomb.diggity.com. Or is that something that like goes through an agency? Because I know 
a lot of the set work, a lot of lighting, most of those have different companies that they hire and they may have personal, like may have specific people that they prefer, but in general, the contract goes to XYZ Corp. Um, is it the same with script supervision or is that just like straight up on an individual basis? It really depends on where you are living and whether you're in the union or not. Okay. So certain places, there are agents. I, I know there's agents in Europe, in England. They have agents that manage and represent script supervisors. Here in LA, no, no agents. Um, and then a lot of the work really is referrals too. Um, once you get in the union, which uh, knocking on wood, I will be very soon. Um, once you get in the union, then you're on the roster. And so productions, you know, say we need a script supervisor and either they go to their friends or they have somebody, you know, that hires the script supervisor and they go to their friends or they go to the roster and say, give me the list of script supervisors. And they just go bump, 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 bump. So if somebody is watching this, it goes, wow, that's amazing. I want to be like Karen when I grow up and they want to go be a script supervisor too. What does that look like? Like, how do you make that? Does oh, it I step one move to gonna, LA or? you were going to tell them how do they, what should they do? I would say they should listen to a new podcast. They should. Mm -hmm. But if we were going to give okay. them like the short answer for that, because that podcast is going to tell them a whole bunch of other things about mm -hmm. whether or not they actually want to do that job. That's fair. Um, yeah, I, the best way is to read some books and go to class. So okay. um, I studied with Randy Feldman, who I cannot recommend highly enough. She now, and since we're in COVID times and who knows if we'll ever get out of it, she teaches online. So you don't have to fly into LA and be here for six weeks, like, or three months or whatever the program was. Um, so once you take a class, then you start making connections. And that's really the key. The key is connecting with people. So you could also do that on Facebook. There's a Facebook group, group called Script Supervisors! Exclamation point and Non-Union Script Supervisors. So like you really want to be a script supervisor, you know, look it up and you can, you can connect with other people. And then what starts to happen is, you know, you start getting people's refuse, right? People ahead of you start flowing back, right? So like when you're first starting out, you'll do work for free. You have to. Or really low pay, you know? Because that's how you get your experience, you know, and the people with experience will not work for free. And yet, because they've been in it so long, people are going, hey, can you do this job for me? And they're like, no, use Karen. And now it's the point where they're like, hey, Karen. And I'm like, uh, no, use this person because <laughs> I don't do that anymore. Right. So you just that's like sort of how it works. And through that, you start meeting people and you get referrals and, you know, you if you do a good job and you're good on set and people like you, you know, then you could get a job from a makeup artist. You could get a job from a prop person. You know, the director likes you and wants to hire you again, or it's, that's how it works. It's all who you know, and you don't have to live in LA. They make films everywhere. They make a lot of there's them. most work days. here. There's a lot yeah. more work here, but there's a lot of work in Atlanta. You know, there's a lot of work. There's work in New Mexico. There's, there's work. There's work where people are making movies and you just have to hook up with the community. You know, when you're first starting out, hook up with the film school, start working on the film school projects, volunteer your time. You know, that's the best way to get started. And then you come up with a sit with this group of people, you know? So basically um, go find the Kevin Smith at your uh, film school, be the script supervisor and clerks <laughs> and then hope for the best going for I that. I mean, that's Yeah. And stage, then you're done. stage advice. And then you're, you're set for and life. You're set for life. It's easy. <laughs> yeah. So what does a script supervisor make? Doesn't have to be you personally, but in general. And yeah. how do they make it? Is I assume it's not hourly. I assume it's for the project, but I may be wrong in that. You might be wrong. Okay. You are. How does it work then? <laughs> Educate me. Usually you get paid by the hour or for a 12-hour day. Okay. And so the only rules about what you can get paid 
live in the world of the union projects. And that's okay. any movie you're going to go see in the movie theater, the TV shows on TV, some commercials, some, you know, some independent films are union and some aren't and some TV shows aren't. Anyway, so the union have strict rules about what script supervisors get to be paid. And there's a whole lot that we have to do before we step on set because we don't just take notes, we have to understand the story, we have to do a lot of preparation, we have to do our pre-production breakdown, we have to decide, you know, how many days in the story, what, where does the days, end, you know, like all these things we have to do for pre-production, and there's a certain number of days that you're supposed to get paid for in pre-production, and then at the end, we put together our book, you know, you were talking about at the end, ah, all the notes, we collab, you know, do all that, um, and so, there's mandated amounts of prep and wrap in the union and in the non-union world, you're on your own. Everything's on your own. So you negotiate for the best rate you can get and for as many prep and wrap days that you can get, depending on the project, depending on their budget. You know, you also want to try and get extra money for a kit fee, which is, well, if I'm bringing my personal computer, and on it, I have my personal software that I had to pay for. And it's sitting on a table that I had to buy. And I use my Blackmagic mini recorder that I that I bought that plugs into the monitor so that I can take screen grabs. You know, I had to pay for all that. And so if you want me to use that on your set, which helps me to do the best job that I can do, so you should want me to use that, you should pay for the use of that stuff. So all these things are negotiations and all these things are things that you learn. Like when I first started out, I didn't have a kit. I had a three ring binder and paper. That's how everybody, that's how you should start. You know, you got to learn the job because the job is not a software. Now I'm lecturing, but anyways, so, you know, you build up your kit as time goes on and then you just get better at negotiating. You get, you have more of an understanding of how long it's going to take you in prep and what really has to be done. And then you just, you negotiate. So that was a long answer of no answer. Look that, at that was a huge answer. And I really appreciate it. Like that was so interesting because I literally, I assumed that it was like, I would be terrible in script script. And we totally take advantage of it. like, absolutely. This is by the, by the set. That's totally how we do this here. Here's a check for an amount of money that you thought was a lot. And now we're going to kill you <laughs> with all of the hours. So no, that was fascinating. And I, like, I just think that, so many people like it must be so frustrating at the beginning because there's such i can hear how steep that learning curve has to be between the lingo between the expectation right that like the okay great even if you ex so you've explained pretty clearly right what the job is i can imagine something like i could do that except i know me and I have the equivalent of that in my world is my coordinator and God bless her. Robin may be a saint because mm -hmm. I'm like, mm -hmm. yeah, I know that those were the words that I used. However, that it was nothing to do with what I intended. And so like the other day we had it, she asked me some question and I said, pause. And she thought that meant it's oh, like the, that the person was green lighted to go to the next step. And so she's like starting to send emails to be like, oh, oh. That is possibly right. No, pass P A S S pass. Oh, um, sorry. Yeah. Sorry. My, my sometimes. What is this? Where are... <laughs> so, sorry. Ten and a half years, 10 and a half years. So I um... won't even try. I'm not good. That's I can't, I can do other accents. I cannot do the English one. I just cannot. It's just like, it was hilarious when I first came home. And people were like, where are you from? I was like, Texas. And they're like, no, really, where where are you from, darling? And I'm like, you hear England because I have lived there for 10 and a half years. Oh, my God. I just love England. Oh, God. <laughs> I, can't, I can't. We People literally in grocery stores would hear my husband and I talking Mm -hmm. I would like run up to my husband like, oh, I love you. I'm like, awkward panda. Oh my um, but yes. So anyway, I said pause about something. And she thought that meant that I was green lighting the candidate to go through. And what oh. I meant by that was 
past. Like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Yes. Like, oh yeah. I, yes. Communication, communication. Ooh. And I would imagine it's about 9 billion times more complicated than that in your world that they'll be like, Karen, I want the blah, blah, blah. And you're like, sure, sure. But their version of the blah, blah, blah. And the previous four directors you've worked with versions of the blah, blah, blah probably bear very little resemblance to one another. I don't know what you mean by blah, blah, blah in this instance. So I can't really say. So if in like any particular component of your job, so if they're like, Hey, I need the notes from today's shoot. Mm -hmm. Cool. Cool. There's probably no, well, no, first of all, nobody's going to ask me for the notes except the editor. Okay. Um, so I've already given it to him. I've already given it to him. Okay. You know, but um, well, maybe oh. production. Production might want to know the notes, but but I know that if they're asking for the notes, what production is asking is, what have we shot and what do we have left? Are we on schedule or are we behind? That's what production wants to know. They don't care if we did a wide angle lens or a low angle shot or a jib or what. They don't care. They want to know, are we on budget? Are we on time? But the editors must all have like special, like everybody must have individual foibles about how they want those things presented and what fine level of detail that they want and don't want. Do you, like, is that, is it a pretty standard level of deviation on those points so that when you come in to a project at the outset, you're like, cool, how do you want this to look? Do you want this or that? Or is it like you figure it out on the fly because you get it wrong the first three times or what does that look like? Yeah, that's really interesting because it takes a while to understand how to communicate with all the different department heads because we have to communicate with all the different department heads, you know, and a lot of times I'll reach out to the editor before we shoot and say, Hey, do you have a particular thing that you're looking for in my notes? Is there a certain, I use Scarit software. Are you familiar with Scarit? Uh, does that, mean anything to you most people know the software scripty you know and they scripty is a different pdf style you know and so like we're doing vfx stuff do you care how i slate it slate is the you know when they say take four apple four apple take one beep that's us we go four apple that's what we're no four baker that's us you know but like there's there's an art to deciding what goes on the slate and you know that's how the editor knows what's everywhere. So it's really important that if they want us to have the slate say a certain thing for the VFX shot, if they want us to put the V in front of it, or if they don't, you know, that's that could be a thing because they're scanning through, scrubbing through all this stuff. And if they see the V, then they know that's the VFX. Or maybe they don't do it that way at all. Maybe they don't care. Some, some editors go, I don't care about your notes. I don't look at your notes. It's like, yeah! And why am I writing them? <laughs> well, because I have to do it for myself. Because if I don't take the notes and somebody comes up to me and says, what did it, you know, was this on the table before? And I have to, you know, or what, did we shoot this already? Or what do we, do we have anything left in this scene? Or do we, I need those notes for me, for my job during the day. That makes perfect sense. And that sounds exhausting. I'm not going to lie. It is exhausting to make movies. But also kind of fun. Like Super I can fun. see where the fun part comes in. So you're surrounded by creatives. You're in a sea of artists. Everybody's an artist. You're not selling it. <laughs> what? No, what? I love artists. Are you kidding? I, I love, love artists. The actors you know, they're creatives and the director's creative and the DP's creative and the props are creative and the costume's creative and the makeup's creative. Everybody's a creative. Even the lights, are. there's an art to everything. So my business partner is an artist. She's a ceramicist. And I do a lot of work in the gaming industry and they are all creatives. And I am not a creative. Well, then don't I am a business person. And so I'm like, I love what you can do with that energy, but also let's pay some bills, bitches. <laughs> like I am that person. I am always the bad news fairy at the table in the room full of creatives who has mm -hmm. to be like, yes, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. your vision is glorious. However, we do not have $8 billion to do that. Yeah. We that's have the $5. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah you'd be a great producer. Uh, yeah, that's the job of the producer. <laughs> One of the many hats of jobs of producers. Producers do a million things too, which is another thing I, I can do. I've produced a lot of things and I do not want to be a producer. I am starting to think, Karen, that the list of things you cannot do is very short. And that it is only a matter of what things you do not want to do. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah. I, Where yeah. could I have possibly gotten that impression? <laughs> and, well, believe it or not, we are almost out of time. So what have I not asked you that I should? Obviously, we have your fabulous podcast. And we're no, going we didn't to have really all talk the much about it. Tell it's, me more about the pop podcast. It's a 10 episode limited series that just launched everywhere you get your podcasts. Um, one episode a week for 10 weeks. It launched today, August 3rd. That's when we're taping it. I don't know when you'll watch it. So check it out wherever you find the podcasts. I interviewed 13 amazing script supervisors from across the US that worked on everything from Oscar and Emmy award winning and all just like amazing, amazing projects. And um, the really cool thing that I did with this podcast is it's not just a straight interview podcast. Not that there's anything wrong with straight interview podcasts. Thank you. But what I decided was, you know, I need these script supervisors to get visibility. I need people to hear what we have to say. Like, and if I just say, this is the podcast with Randy Feldman, well, all the script supervisors are going to go, oh my God, it's Randy Feldman. But like, you don't know who Randy is. And I need the world to know who Randy is, Right. Fair. And Don Gilliam and Mary Sobolski and, you know, Marjorie Kimber and all the amazing talent that I have. And I thought, well, what is going to draw people in? Topics. Interesting topics. So each episode has a short interview of 10 to 15 minutes, 10 to 12 minutes, and then a topic of about the same length, right? And the topic is curated from all the interviews. So I have one topic is negotiating and how to get the job, which Sure, we talk about it from the script supervisor's point of view, but I think your audience would be very interested in that episode because it can be related to any job where you have to negotiate and know your worth. That's the I'm excited for that myself. Yeah. I'm like, ooh. I'm yeah, yeah. So yeah. that one, and then I have one on continuity, which the people we were talking about earlier, the content, the armchair continuity police will love. You know, I have a podcast topic on what the heck happened with that Game of Thrones coffee cup really what happened with that and we talk everyone's got a theory and then I actually by the end tell you we know exactly what happened because we know somebody who knows somebody who knows exactly how that happened so so that's the really cool thing to me about the podcast is these topics that are really interesting and they're just sound bites curated from all of the interviews so you don't have to like listen to an hour of people babbling about things that you're not interested in not like this podcast where you're interested in every minute, but every other second. podcasts where people talk and you're like, eh, go forward. It's just short. It's sweet. It's the point. Every episode is under 30 minutes, you know, including a two and a half or two minute and 11 second bio song in the middle, which is a song that, well, it's, I, I had people like, who are, who are these people on your podcast? I need to know. And so I wrote this, you know, the amazing script supervisors on this podcast include, and then I list their names and I list some of their credits and it's really cool, but it, like it went on. And I was like, nobody's going to sit and listen to this. I need, it needs to have its own theme song. So I had my composer make a theme song to go under that. And it's like really cool pulsing beat and like every name it changes. And it's like, and then Dawn Gilliam and Marjorie Kimbrough and Sharon Watt. And it's just like awesome. And so, oh my God. Um, so that, lives in the center of every episode which is like super fun break and so yeah it's just I'm really proud of it I've worked really hard on it I've been working on this since before the pandemic I did four interviews in person before the pandemic and we just launched today August 3 2022 cheers to that absolutely I'm super excited you've got a listener for me for sure like I think it sounds amazing I'm particularly excited about um the Game of Thrones coffee cup that's episode 10 Okay, noted. And the negotiation went obviously, but that's that's like low hanging fruit for me, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I mean, when it comes out, you know, let me know what you think. I will do, and we'll have links to all of that so that everybody else can go and check it out as well. And you have been such a delight. Thank you so much for joining you. me this and educating me. I learned so oh. much. Oh my god, <laughs> yeah. this is amazing. This is great. Thank, Thank you. you, and and your listeners can reach out to me directly. <laughs>
Awesome. With questions. That is a big offer. So thank you. Yeah. Careful what you say. I didn't do, mean to do that. <laughs> You've been listening to, Hey, I want your job. For more information on how you can get your own awesome job, visit ONH Consulting at www.onhconsulting.com. We offer incredible resumes, no-nonsense career advice, and real-world tips for landing a job in today's market. Check us out on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Insta for more insider information. Soon, you'll be hearing us say, I'm Michelle Olivier, and hey, I want your job.